Hello, and welcome to this Beyond the Headlines election special from The National. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The most consequential American election of you choose since the last hundred years, since the time of the Civil War, 150 years ago, is about to occur. With less than a week to go, I'm joined by two of the national correspondents based in America, and we're going to talk through some of the things that still linger, some of the things that are still important and unknowable yet, until people's votes are counted, about the American election. Joyce Karam is in Washington, D.C., and James Reinald is in New York. And I'm going to start by asking you, Joyce, first of all, the prospects for disruption in this election are, are reported daily. Uh, most recently, a young African-American man was shot dead by police in Philadelphia. This seems to be a theme of the year in America. But I'm wondering how much that is really affecting the vote, what people's decisions are. And I want to ask you, Joyce, to answer that first. Hi, Michael. Good to be with you. I think you're definitely correct when you say this is a very consequential election. Uh, we're seeing a lot of anxiety around the voting process and uh, the voting uh, issues. Today in the U.S., I think we are at 67 million early votes, and that's a record. That's something we haven't seen, uh, you know, in the past hundred years or so. I think this reflects the level of anxiety that the voters are having. Uh, they want to uh, get out early. They want to stand uh, in line now to make sure or mail their ballot to make sure their votes are counted. Because I think for the first time, also in a long time, there are questions about the credibility of, of uh, uh, the election. Uh, there are questions about uh, will their vote be counted or not. The system itself is being shaken by, you know, issues. Uh, you've mentioned uh, protests across the U.S. By, by a raging pandemic. So in that sense, I see, uh, you know, the last week of this race as one that's uh, ridden by uh, anxiety, but at the same time by enthusiasm to make sure that there is a turnout, a higher turnout than we've seen perhaps in the last uh, four elections. So this is, this is how, how it looks from where I am in Washington, D.C., and where early voting actually started Tuesday morning today. It's interesting. James Reinald in New York, you, you, you've been in America for the last three elections, for both Obama wins and for the Trump victory in 2016. Joyce used an interesting word. She said credibility of the election. When you covered your first vote back in 2008, would credibility have ever entered into your thinking? The first election of Barack Obama. No, let's be straight. People weren't talking about, you know, is my vote going to be counted? Is it going to be fair? There have been questions about U.S. elections over the years. You could go back to the Florida recount from the 2000 election, for example, and the Supreme Court decision and the way a few hundred votes ultimately swung the election and handed to George W. Bush. And you could possibly look at debates, ongoing debates that have been 
happening over the years about the electoral college system and the number of occasions, um, and these have been happening with greater frequency, that a candidate can take the White House, as Donald Trump did in 2016, without winning the popular vote, but by winning the 270 plus votes that you need in the electoral college. So I guess these are um, issues about how reflective a democracy America really is. But no, actual credibility in an election hasn't been discussed to such an extent until this time, with Donald Trump, for example, repeatedly railing against the prospect of mail-in ballots being you know, ripe for fraud and so on. Um, and so this does feed into concerns about the election. Like Joyce says, that's probably part of the reason why so far more people than ever have gone to early polling stations and cast mail-in ballots, 60 million so far. They're doing that because they want to have their vote counted and also because of coronavirus and because they don't want to go to a very busy, long line, frantic polling station on November 3rd. As to this other issue about voter intimidation that you've spoken about, I mean, obviously, there's lots of talk about it. Journalists like us are talking about it. There are great concerns about voter intimidation, particularly after Donald Trump told the Proud Boys, a right wing militant movement, to stand back and stand by before the election. But and you refer to the incident in Philadelphia last night, and that is an incident in which an individual was shot, and that's terribly sad. But does this really amount to um, voter intimidation? My contention is that we it hasn't materialized yet. 60 million votes have been cast already, more than ever. There have been isolated incidents of, for example, Trump supporters shouting outside polling stations. But in all these instances, and while people have said, yes, I do find that intimidating, they've been able to walk into the polling stations and cast their vote. And so I think what we're seeing is something a little bit more like a very lively, raucous democracy in which passions are high because you've got such an iconoclast president, Donald Trump, being facing re-election during a deadly pandemic um, and a very opinionated and very different kind of leader. And so I think what you're seeing is anxiety and passions being manifest. I don't see a huge amount of voter intimidation happening. I think this is a democratic reassertion. I want to come back to the point about credibility and, and your own knowledge of American politics. And and Joyce, you can chime in after. I, I'm just curious to know, did you ever think you would, because you're both born overseas, did you ever think you would be talking about an American election in this way, where there was doubt about, yes, the votes are being cast, but the doubt really centers on how accurately they'll be counted. Did you ever think you'd come across this, James? I think Donald Trump has been a surprising candidate and then president in all kinds of dimensions. And I think that what we're seeing now is he's trying any, he's seen the poll numbers. He knows that he won because of a few breaks in a few states in 2016. And he wants to keep the White House and he wants to continue his presidency and his mission, I guess. And he's trying any kind of trick in the book that he can uh, do to achieve that. And one of the ways he's trying to do that is saying that, you know, mail-in ballots are going to be a way that this election could be stolen from him, even though there's very little evidence that mail-in ballots, mail ballots or voter fraud 
is a big issue in the United States or has ever been a big issue in the United States. Okay, Joyce, are, are, you've lived in the United States a very long time, and I wonder if you ever thought you'd ever see an election quite like this. Uh, well, Michael, I think this is a tough question. And, you know, coming from the Middle East, I guess my answer is no. I come from Lebanon, where a lot of time when the when we have, uh, quote-unquote, elections happen, you'd see the power shut off when the counting starts. You'd see sometimes uh, boxes, ballot boxes smuggled in. And I always thought, you know, as, as an immigrant, that the U.S. is the dream uh, democracy, is the ideal place for, you know, democratic and transparent elections. And that might still be the case. It's just what we're hearing um Publicly, what we're hearing, uh, you know, from the U.S. president himself, encouraging his supporters to vote twice. That's very Lebanese in uh, in some way. I didn't expect to see that or to hear that in 2020 in the U.S. And as far as, you know, we're preparing for after November 3rd, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if there's going to be legal battles that would go for a month. We don't know if uh, President Trump, if he were to lose, if he will actually concede. So this is all very Middle Eastern in some way. And uh, someone like me who started covering the U.S. during the Iraq war and the push for democracy uh, in the Middle East, it's, it's, it feels a bit surreal to be on this side now and seeing reporting uh, on these issues. It's also, I have to say, the lines, the, the vote suppression that goes on that I still don't understand, even though I've been in this country uh, for that long. Texas, for example, where you have one uh, drop-in ballot box for a county with millions of people. It's just, how does that work? And even in that same place, they're challenging the actual drive through to to drop uh, in your ballot. So that aspect of uh, American democracy, I think, is something that I didn't expect to see that magnified in what we're seeing in Texas or Georgia, for example. And this is, you know, a learning experience, uh, and we'll see what happens after November 3rd. But definitely, I'm having flashbacks from from Lebanon and, and the Middle East. Joyce, I have to tell you, I'm an American, grew up in the country, and I thought I knew everything about American politics. I didn't know about this, um, about the ability of a governor from one party to make it more difficult in a national election. You know, the idea that Houston, which is, I think, the third or the fourth biggest city in America in terms of population, has one drop-off place for several million potential voters, is pretty extraordinary. So you're not the only one there. But you know, what's interesting to me um, has been, basically, since it was clear that the pandemic was really going to take root in America, that, the, that there would be perhaps not an efficient response to it from the federal government, the polls have pretty much been in the same place. Nothing happens that seems to change them. You know, Biden has been leading by seven to 10 points. Nothing happens to change that. Um, and I, I wonder why you think that is. Um, I'm going to start with you, Joyce, and then we'll go over to James and, and get his view on why have things been so stable? 
I mean, we've had three debates. Nothing changes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, 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 I totally see your point, and I do think it's an indication of the level of polarization uh, in in America uh, today that you have, you know, lines drawn among uh, Democrats and uh, Republicans, and whatever uh, Trump does and whatever Biden does, nothing seems to tilt those voters in one way or another. I mean, we are talking today about. 3% undecided. That's a very low uh, percentage. In previous elections, I think it was like 10% or 7%. So I don't think it's about Trump. I don't think it's about Biden. It's about the polarization in, in, in the U.S. system, uh, the dividing line that's growing between Democrats and uh, Republicans. And that this election, maybe for a lot of Democrats, it's it's an anti-Trump uh, for independents, some independents too, it's an anti-Trump vote. But for Republicans, and I, I know a few who actually don't like Mr. Trump's behavior, but they're still voting for him because it's about the Supreme Court, it's about judicial appointments, it's about immigration. Uh, so this is where the country is at, and this is a question also for, for any future president. Can a future president unify this country? Because the, the, the upheaval, uh, the protests uh, we're seeing from both sides, is, it's also indicatory of, of this polarization. James? I sort of mostly agree with Joyce. I think probably the last and most recent thing to have happened in this country that would have swung any voters around has been the coronavirus pandemic. And that's been tearing through the country since um, about March. And I think early on in the that particular crisis, we got a decision about which way people were going to go. Trump was going to be against masks and was going to take limited efforts. He was going to talk about keeping the economy open, etc., and I think he lost a ton of support there because, like Joe Biden says, there are um, empty chairs around the country where Americans have died. I think it's uh, 226,000 as of today, close to 9 million infections, one of the worst records of any rich world nation. And I think really since then, um, like Joe says, people's opinions have been baked in. I think many people came into 2020 knowing which way they were going to vote. You see, with a candidate like Trump, and it is really all about Trump this election, I don't think many people are voting because they absolutely love Joe Biden. I think they're voting on their opinion about Trump. What surprises really are there left about this guy? I mean, I could take you back to 2016, and there was the Access Hollywood tape where he was going on air talking about, well, I won't say it, but we all know what he was referring to there. Um, and, you know, that didn't dent his appeal. He still managed to win an election after that. And so every single crazy wild thing that he's said ever since over the last four years. It's all baked in. People expect it. What is there that could happen now that would actually change your mind about him? You either love him or you hate him. And I think over the course of the four years, there's been a little bit of a swing around the margins, particularly among suburban women, um, about whether or not they love him or they hate him. And I think now where we are, this 10%, 8% lead that Joe Biden is seeing is really a reflection of that. Let me ask you then, James, do you think that given that it's about Trump, and I have to say I completely agree with you, that this is always going to 
be a referendum on Trump. Do you think that the polls that we're seeing this time are likely to be more accurate than they were in 2016 uh, when, well, they were close to the margin of error, but they were still predicting a Hillary Clinton victory? See, now the polling is a big area of debate. And where I go on this one is I think the polls were basically right in 2016. Sure, they gave, what was it, Trump a 20% chance of winning back then. I think if you looked at 538 or the New York Times on the days before the election. And what happened on election night is that Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes in the popular vote. And Trump managed to carve out a few uh, 10,000, 20,000 votes in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in uh, Pennsylvania, and that tipped him over the 270, and he won a comfortable margin in the Electoral College. I mean, of course, it went against what the pollsters were telling you, but I think you need to look at a 20% chance of winning and take that as a realistic prospect that if the chips fall in a certain way um, on that particular night, then the 20% candidate is going to win. In much the same way as if you've got, I don't know, two soccer teams or two baseball teams that are going head to head, and one of them is a really uh, you know, successful 80% chance of winning team, and one team has a 20% chance of winning team. Anybody who watches that sport over a number of years knows that most of the times the giant team is going to win, but sometimes the loser comes through, the, the, the outside chance comes through, and they take the, they take the tournament. And that's what happened uh, in 2016. That's why they play. That's why they play the games because that's, you why, have that's to- why we keep on watching because it's fun, you know. Because because there is a chance. Let me bring in Joyce here because what I'm really curious, Joyce, we know about the polls from 2016, and and James has very clearly explained, you know, that that they gave Trump a one in five chance, and one in five, you know, some people will play those odds in Las Vegas and they'll win a lot of money. But I'm wondering this cycle, as this year. How have you been reading the polls? Have you changed the way you look at them? What is what what little bit of what little nugget of information is kind of shaping the way you expect things to go on November third? Twenty sixteen, I think five thirty eight had Hillary uh, chances at maybe sixty percent on the last uh, day, and Trump at uh, thirty three. I have to say, I mean, it's not, nobody said Hillary has it in the bag and is going to win, you know, by by 100% chance. That's just even projections now. I mean, Nate Silver, I think, has Biden at 87%. Plural vote, uh, another prediction forecast has him at 69%. So while there is, you know, a lot of reasons to look at the polls and say they were wrong. This is, we can't trust them anymore. It's just, it's data and it's human behavior. You know, and people do change uh, their mind. You're absolutely right. And as you've gone out and about, is there an anecdote that has broken through, you know, what Nate Silver of 538 likes to call the signal, not the noise, something you've observed that tells you, this could be a key to understanding what's going to happen. For me, the two anecdotes that stand out from this elections uh, is two patterns that I'm observing. One is people who know that didn't vote or voted for third party uh, in 2016 are out and they're voting uh, today mostly for Joe Biden. 
That's different from 2016. Of course, it's not a scientific observation. The other aspect that I'm seeing is among Arab Americans, the shy Trump voter that uh, we've seen in 2016 is shy no more. Uh, I do know, you know, people, Arab Americans in, in Michigan, for example, that are uh, publicly saying they will vote for Donald Trump in a way they weren't comfortable seeing that publicly in, in 2016. So observing these two uh, patterns and how they go and how they will influence the vote will be very interesting, especially with the magnitude of polls we're seeing and, and the data that's coming in. It's a lot to, to process, but uh, I think this election, if the turnout uh, is high, the polls could be right. If the turnout is low and people stay stay in, then we could see uh, another surprise. Okay. And James, not data, just an observation that you've made being out and about. I got one for you, Michael. Um, I'm going to take you back to 2016 quickly. And I was going to the rallies for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And my, I, I, I like to get like a feel for people and appetite and passion and excitement. And I felt that at Trump rallies. I went to the Trump rallies and I could see that there was like a discernible part of the population that felt that it had been undercounted and was really gunning for their guy. I went to a Hillary Clinton rally and I saw a bunch of bored millennials looking at their mobile phones, skating through Instagram, not really listening to what she said um, and just expecting her to win. And that's why back in 2016, I was predicting a Trump win. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a rally in Pennsylvania, coal country, a Trump rally. And the same kind of crowds were turning out for Trump. They had all the T-shirts. They were chanting four more years. They were chant chanting fill her seat. But the weather, the temperature started to dip a little bit. It was out on the tarmac in an airport out in the middle of nowhere. And at that moment, people just started leaving. And then they started leaving in greater numbers and greater numbers. And Trump was still talking. And Trump was occasionally saying things like, come on, uh, you know, suburban women, why don't you like me? And just a little bit longer, guys. And I was sensing that the passion isn't really there. And although they were all saying they definitely think Trump is going to win again, I think the heart isn't in it in quite the same way. And so my discerning impression of this election is a bunch of people who had been diehard Trump fans putting on their sweatshirts and walking out before closing time. And so that's why this time, as opposed to 2016, I'm predicting a Trump lose. James Rhino, that's a very interesting place to end this podcast. Joyce Carum, thanks very much for joining us. I'm Michael Goldfarb in London. And the election is November 3rd. The result? Hmm. It'll be a few days after that. Thanks this week to all our contributors. This was Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the program in your favorite podcasting app to get all the latest episodes. And if you have a moment, please leave a review. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.